Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the breaking story in the New York Times and at ProPublica that a 90-year-old billionaire donated all of his shares in his company worth $1.6 billion to a dark money vehicle, the Marble Freedom Trust, controlled by Leonard Leo to save $400 million in taxes, while Leo is able to use his tax-exempt status to also avoid taxes. Joining us is Brendan Fisher, Deputy Executive Director of Documented, a watchdog group where he leads their work before federal regulatory agencies such as the Federal Election Commission to ensure vigorous and fair enforcement of campaign finance and ethics laws and to hold candidates and political committees accountable for violating those laws. He was previously general counsel with the Center for Media and Democracy, and we will discuss how this infusion of dark money will finance far-right causes and bolster the GOP's flagging efforts in fundraising for the November elections. Then we'll examine further how, to quote Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, quote, Let's be clear. The creepy billionaire interests behind the massive dark money machine would rather hold power in the smoking ruins of American democracy than live in a healthy democracy where they can't sell their terrible ideas to a public that doesn't want them. Joining us is Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. Then finally, we'll look into how Russian organized crime got a foothold in the U.S. in Brighton Beach, and how Putin's time as a hooligan in what he described as his street university, along with his ties to organized crime, are even greater influences on him than his former career as a Soviet intelligence officer. Joining us is Douglas Century, the author and co-author of numerous best-selling books, including Hunting El Chapo, Under the Alone, Brotherhood of Warriors, Barney Ross, The Life of a Jewish Fighter, and Take Down the Fall of the Last Mafia Empire. A veteran investigative journalist, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard Tablet, and The Guardian, and his latest book just out is The Last Boss of Brighton Beach, Bieber Neyfeld, and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Brendan Fisher, who's the Deputy Executive Director of Documented, a watchdog group. And he leads their work before federal regulatory agencies such as the Federal Elections Commission to ensure vigorous and fair enforcement of campaign finance and ethics laws and to hold candidates and political committees accountable for violating those laws. And he previously was general counsel with the Center for Media and Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brendan Fisher. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's an extraordinary story at the New York Times uh, today, an unusual $1.6 billion donation bolsters conservatives. 
a low-profile Republican financier, donated his company to a new group run by the influential operative Leonard Leo. There's also a similar article at ProPublica. And this has elicited a response from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's been something of a champion against dark money and its pernicious influence over our politics. Sheldon Whitehouse tweeted out today, Let's be clear, the creepy billionaire interests behind the massive dark money machine would rather hold power in the smoking ruins of American democracy than live in a healthy democracy where they can't sell their terrible ideas to a public that doesn't want them. That seems to sort of get to the heart of the matter, doesn't it, Brendan? That's right. Um, Well, so Leonard Leo has been referred to by Justice Clarence Thomas as the number three most powerful person in America. And he's been an amazingly influential and in many ways uh, behind the scenes political operative. He he's played a key role in recent decades in engineering the conservative takeover of the judiciary. He worked with President Trump to nominate justices, nominate and confirm Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett. And he was already an incredibly powerful fundraiser and political operative. And now, thanks to uh, these you know, quite complicated corporate maneuvers, Leo is now in control of just an astonishing amount of money. He is uh, the trustee of a newly created trust that uh, is sitting on $1.6 billion. That's billion with a B. Um, and to my knowledge, we've never seen anything like this in the history of American politics, where um, an already powerful political operative is giving control of such an, an astonishing sum of money. Um, so if even a fraction of this fortune is is reinvested, um, is put is put into the stock market, for example, as it almost surely will be, you know, Leonard Leo will be able to maintain and and grow um, his singular political influence in, in near perpetuity. Um, you know, this money's not going anywhere. Uh, so Leo is going to Leo is now um, going to become you know, one of the most powerful political figures in in the United States. And the industrialist, what is it? Barra said, "Is that how you pronounce his name?" Uh, well, the industrialist. Uh, some people say it's pronounced said. Others pronounce uh, pronounce it in other ways. But that that confusion speaks to the secretive nature of this of this individual. Um, so Barre said, uh, let's go with that pronunciation, is uh, the, the past chairman and CEO of a company called Trip Light, which was a, a surge protector manufacturer and has really uh, profited from you know, the, the increasing move towards, uh, towards cloud comp- computing and data storage. Um, and he's a, approximately 90 years old and a, and a very wealthy individual, but has really flown under the radar. Um, you know, if you look through FEC records, you find almost nothing. He's not been somebody like uh, David and Charles Koch, who've poured you know, substantial sums into super PACs or dark money groups. He's really flown under the radar. But, you know, he's, he's popped up here and there. He, for example, was allegedly the, the anonymous donor behind this, this right-wing campaign to distribute DVDs about radical Islam in swing states um, uh, in connection with President Obama's re-election. Uh, and he, over the years, has given uh, roughly $13 million to the climate denialist group, the Heartland Institute. But he, um, 
last year quietly worked with Leonard Leo uh, to appoint Leo as the trustee of this newly created uh, 501c4 trust called their Marble Trust, um, and then transferred the shares of his company to the trust, which and the the the, the company was then sold for 1.65 billion dollars. Um, with all of the proceeds going into this trust controlled by Leonard Leo. Um, and Leo is now able to, uh, to use those funds to you know, advance his, his political aims. Sure, and neither, and neither said or <clears throat> Leonard Leo paid any taxes. It said saved himself a, at least $400 million in taxes. So, and what we know about said, by the, and that means that we, you and I, Brendan, are subsidizing this kind of right-wing influx of <clears throat> money into our politics. But he's also, as said, been behind this group called Consumers Research that have been bankrolling ads attacking Coca-Cola CEOs, American Airlines and Nike, because they have advertised or they've made a stand against Trump's big lie that he won the elections. So they want to overturn the big lie and intimidate American CEOs into either being silent or to buying into the big lie. And also said was the secret multi-million dollar donor behind the George Mason University's Antonin Scalia School of Law, along with who other than uh, Charles Koch. So that's an indication from what you've said and, and what I'm looking at here um, is that this guy's really, Leonard Leo, is really going to fund some reactionary programs, right? I think that's right. And, and, the, and the point you made uh Initially, uh, about the fact that you know, we as taxpayers are effectively helping to you know, subsidize this is, is an important one. Um, you know, historically, a billionaire like said would have put their fortune into into foundations, um, uh, the Ford Foundation, for example, or the Koch family foundations, and and foundations offer a donor substantial tax benefits, uh, but. In exchange for those tax benefits, foundations face limits on how the money can be used for political activity. The money, the money in a foundation is supposed to be used to advance social welfare and charitable causes. It cannot be used for political activity. Um, so by through this maneuver, uh, said you know avoided taxation and also avoided the limits on how the funds could be used for for political engagement. Because if if said you know, had had sold his company and then given the shares to a Leo-controlled nonprofit, he would have paid taxes on the sale. Um, or if said had given the shares to a super PAC, uh, he also would have been, been taxed on on that gift, on that transfer. Um, you know, and again, if he had given the money to, if he had put the money into a foundation, he could have avoided taxes, but then uh, would have also had to abide by by limits on political activities. So, so through this complicated maneuver, um, you know, said uh, avoided taxation, avoided limits on how the funds could be used for political engagement, and uh, in the process made the you know the largest political advocacy donation in U.S. history that we that we know about. Um, and Leonard Leo, who is a, a deeply reactionary figure, um, is going to have an enormous amount of resources to advance his, his anti-democratic ideas and his ideas that are just generally not popular uh, with, the, with the American public. 
And again, I'm speaking with Brendan Fisher, the Deputy Executive Director of Documented, a watchdog group where he leads their work before federal regulatory agencies such as the Federal Election Commission to ensure vigorous and fair enforcement of campaign finance and ethics laws and to hold candidates and and political committees accountable for violating those laws. And he was previously General Counsel with the Center for Media and Democracy. So, uh, Brendan Fisher... Obviously, the Democrats had raised more funds through these dark money vehicles, these 501c4s, in the last cycle than the, than the Republicans did. But it looks like with this $1.6 billion infusion that Leonard Leo now controls, the Republicans, who were short of money in this cycle, there have been lots of reports that the Republicans aren't earning, aren't raising the kind of money that uh, Democrats are for the upcoming November elections. They're going to more than level the playing field, are they not? That seems very that seems very likely, and we've already seen some indications of this. Um, you know, so during during the Trump years, Trump, of course, was a a prolific small dollar fundraiser, and during the Trump years, the Republican Party raised a, a substantial amount of money, you know, from individuals giving donations of twenty or fifty dollars, you know, and relying less on wealthy donors writing maxed out checks and donors to super PACs writing six or seven figure donations to the purportedly independent groups. Um, but that's beginning to shift, you know, with Trump playing perhaps less of a role and with Trump, you know, perhaps burning out some of his small dollar do- donors uh, by, by continually hitting that, hitting them up for donations, you know, uh, for election defense funds, for example, that don't actually exist. Uh, Republicans are having, or the Republican national committee in particular is having trouble fundraising, and they've uh, had to rely increasingly on uh, outside groups like super PACs and dark money dark money groups that are funded by you know, large checks from a small handful of individuals. Uh, so you know, the, the fact that we know that that Leo is sitting on this astonishing sum of money, you know, can give some indications of where where things are going to be going. That you know uh, potentially. Uh, less of the money that's going to be flowing into the midterm elections on the Republican side is going to be coming from the party committees themselves and more of it from uh, outside groups like the, like those controlled by Leonard Leo. And with Trump in trouble over this seizure of classified documents at uh, Mar-a-Lago, his latest um, shakedown of his supporters is, you know, give me money to fight the deep state. So... <laughs> He's got so many different avenues to shake down the MAGA folk for money, right? That's right. Yeah, Trump Trump controls a number of different political committees, and you know his his primary political committee, Save America, uh, is sitting on uh, around one hundred million dollars. Uh, so Trump Trump himself has or Trump's own political operation has plenty of money and is continuing to try and tap into its, um, its, its list of supporters in order to, to raise more. Uh, but you know, to the extent that that small dollar, small dollar money is still flowing, a lot of it's going to committees controlled by Trump uh, that, are, that are not spending uh, very much on the midterm elections. And that means that there's less money going to the uh, party committees you know, that, that are trying to influence the, the midterm elections. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Brendan Fisher, given that this upcoming election is probably the most important election in American history, because if the Republicans win in November, 
there are so many election deniers running for key positions like secretaries of state that they'll be able to rig all future elections and basically turn America into one party state. So this 1.6 billion is going to help move us in that direction. Do you think that the Democrats are making enough noise? Are they really pointing out to the American people? I'm talking about not just Democratic voters, but anybody on the left, the centre-left and the centre-right, that what's at stake in November is whether or not we'll have any more elections. This could be the last election you get to vote in if you don't wake up. Yeah, we're certainly in precarious times, and there are a number of um, a, a number of individuals who are the Republican Party's chosen candidates for for office who uh, who deny the the fact that that Biden won the twenty twenty election, and if they are elected in November, you know, will do appear uh, poised to do everything that they can to undermine our vote and to undermine our democracy. Um, so the stakes are certainly high, and but you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it from watching the political press day to day. The focus remains on inflation and high gas prices uh, rather than on whether our democracy will, will, will continue. Well, Brendan Fisher, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Brendan Fisher, who's a deputy executive director of Documented, a watchdog group where he leads their work before federal regulatory agencies such as the Federal Election Commission to ensure vigorous and fair enforcement of campaign finance and ethics laws and to hold candidates and political committees accountable for violating those laws. And he was previously general counsel with the Center for Media and Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how billionaires funding Leonard Leo's dark money machine have to secretly buy elections because they can't sell their terrible ideas to a public that doesn't want them. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nancy McLean. It's nice to be back with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America just got a huge boost, a $1.6 billion donation by an industrialist from Chicago who donated 100% of his shares in his company, Trip Light, to Leonard Leo of the Federalist, formerly of the Federalist Society, who's responsible for getting Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, John Roberts, and Alito and Scalia on the Supreme Court. He basically, what happened, what we're learning about from the New York Times today in a story, an unusual $1.6 billion donation bolsters conservatives. A low-profile Republican financier donated his company to a new group run by the influential operative Leonard Leo. 
So what happened was that this fellow said donated 100% of his shares in Triplite to Leonard Leo's uh, non-profit before the company was sold to an Irish conglomerate for $1.65 billion. And the non-profit of Leo's is called the Marble Freedom Trust. And this deal was structured in a way to mean that Said didn't pay taxes and he saved himself $400 million. And nor that neither did Leonard Leo pay taxes. So a pretty sweet deal, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And it's a real slap in the face to ordinary taxpayers because basically this deal has ordinary folks like us and, and your listeners subsidizing these efforts by billionaires to transform our institutions. You know, Leonard Leo was so successful at doing that, as, as you described, uh, at the Federalist Society and with the Judicial Crisis Network um, and delivering the Dobbs decision uh, and the anti-environmental decision in, in the West Virginia case that now he's being promoted with a huge slush fund. Um, but because they didn't pay tax, we're paying for it. So it's it's not only, you know, a grotesque revelation, a new example of dark money, you know, in larger quantities than we've ever seen before in a single funding effort, but it also is doing so at great cost to the taxpayers who are being asked to subsidize this billionaire effort to transform our institutions to the billionaire's liking because they're because of the way they arranged it through a corporate purchase on which they didn't pay taxes. So how does this, to your mind, since you wrote in many ways, the sort of definitive book on how the plutocracy has bought the democracy, or at least hollowed out the democracy in this country, which I think is the largest issue we all face, and not to mention the fact that the yeah. next election in November may be the last democratic election in America. I mean, for the life of me, Nancy, I don't understand why the Democrats can't make that case to the American people, is that you've got to vote in November, because if you don't, the Republicans have already figured out how to rig the next elections forever and turn us into a one-party state like Orban's Hungary. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening I mean, in Florida. I mean, I do see that case being made by a lot of people, you know, Democrats and others in the activist world. And I think, you know, at least some people in the news media are, are starting to to get wise to this. But I think the longstanding habits in the mainstream media of both sidesism, of impartiality, etc., leave them paralyzed when they're faced with a party that has jumped the rails, that no longer believes in democracy or the Constitution, and that is behaving in a thoroughly authoritarian manner. I mean, the most elementary definition of a functional democracy is one in which the losers of an election acknowledge their loss, right? And what we have now is this phenomenon of, you know, so many Republican candidates for office, I believe it's 70 or 80 percent of the people who are coming through uh, the, the latest primaries are, you know, what's called election deniers. But we should actually be calling them, as Jennifer Rubin said today in The New York Times, election liars. You know, these are people who are promoting Donald Trump's big lie and they're running for offices, as you were suggesting, I think, like secretary of state, where they would be able to determine how the election is run and essentially hand it over to their chosen candidate, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, DeSantis or, you know, whatever MAGA Republican uh, runs in 2024. So I think 
Yeah, I mean, we have got to learn from the failure of ordinary Democrats to mobilize for the 2010 midterms after Obama was elected in 2008. That's when we lost so many state houses. Um, And then those state houses put into effect the voter suppression, the extreme gerrymandering, the destruction of public sector labor unions, and all the rest that have artificially uh, uh, empowered a minority party to push through this kind of billionaire and Christian radical right agenda. So we have got to see you know, people acting like this is this is the most important election in our lives. And sadly, we keep having to say that. But that's because, the you know, the right keeps going further right. And I, I will say this. I mean, I talked to, you know, a lot of folks who are, are quite expert in uh, in elections and, you know, in the data of recent elections. And, you know, what one of them has has pointed out in particular is that, you know, these are not normal election times. Right. So all of this and gloom chatter that we hear from the pundit class about how, you know, the Democrats are going to be shellacked and there's no hope and, you know, on and on and on. All that election modeling is based on normal times, but we're not in normal times, right? And ordinary voters for the Democrats and activists understood that. And in 2018 and 2020, we saw record shattering turnout first for a midterm and then for a presidential election. So uh, with so many election deniers uh, running for office and having the support of the Republican Party, it's critical that uh, Democrats and anybody who cares about democracy um, mobilize to make sure those people are not elected. Um, And we've got to make sure that the state legislatures are, you know, many of them won't be taken back in a single cycle, but the the extent of the gerrymandered supermajorities can be cut and uh, Democratic uh, governors, as in my state of North Carolina, have been very successful at vetoing some of the worst of what um, these MAGA Republicans Republicans uh, have tried to do. So it's really important not only to do turnout um, and to go, you know, door to door um, and talk to fellow voters about the situation and about the need to to get out, but also to make sure that people vote the whole ballot um, so that we can change these state legislatures and preserve non-billionaire dominated state judiciaries. And again, I'm speaking with Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy and Change, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan. But what Leonard Leo represents for the plutocracy is a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And mm-hmm. he's obviously with his Opus Dei ties. He's also in sync with the Christian nationalists uh, who are a big part of the new Republican coalition in blind uh, lockstep support for Donald Trump. But one of the things that Leonard Leo did through the Judicial Crisis Network, the dark money vehicle that they set up, he got donations, some of them to get rid of Merrick Garland, uh, were completely uh, anonymous, of course, thanks to Mm -hmm. Citizens United. But he also got a lot of money from the Koch brothers and other plutocrats. So what's the interest amongst the plutocrats to have America sort of turn into, you know, the handmaid's tale with Amy Coney Coney Barrett and these others? What's the agenda there, do you think? 
Yeah, well, one of the things that I found in my research for Democracy in Chains that was so striking uh, was to find Charles Koch and chief strategist of his recognizing that their, you know, radical right libertarian agenda is so unpopular and will never be popular. So it can't win in an honest way in elections because voters don't want what they are you know, the kind of world they're trying to bring into being. And as a result of that, um, they have relied on strategic disinformation on multiple fronts, and they have relied on rigging the rules of democracy so that this minority uh, party representing even tinier minority interests can stay in power. But to get the, you know, those Republican votes that they have um, committed to getting to move their strategy through the political system, they have to get a reliable uh, base of voters. And they have found that in those religious right voters, particularly white evangelical Christian uh, conservatives, but also, uh, you know, as Leonard Leo's own biography suggests, conservative Catholics. And so that is how they do it. And they square the circle uh, on this theocracy that these folks are bringing in by speaking of freedom. They speak of religious freedom. They even have a transnational actually organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the freedom that they're talking about is the freedom of Christians to dominate everyone else in uh, in these societies uh, in which they work. And so by freedom, they mean the freedom to discriminate against lesbians and gays and you know other LGBTQ people. They mean uh, the freedom for religious employers to refuse uh, abortion coverage to women, um, you know, and those kinds of freedom. So really freedom to dominate, not freedom from domination, which is the way most of the rest of us understand it. Well, just in closing, just in this 1.6 billion that Leonard Leo now has to spend on the 2020 elections, just before this happened, his new group or his new dark fund vehicle, the Marble Trust, they already donated 229 million to other nonprofits to expand the network, and uh, they spent a total of 122 million on issues to animate their conservative base. I'm reading from the New York Times article to confirm conservative federal judges to restrict abortion, etc. And uh, one group, the Rule of Law Trust, was involved in the judicial nomination fight. They received 153 million from Leonard Leo last year, and another, the Concord Fund, uh, received 16.5 million. So these, uh, this is how, how they're doing it, right? They're literally buying the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, these are head spinning numbers um, and they are spending them on many fronts. I would, though, really, really reinforce the point with listeners, because it is easy to feel daunted by all of this, that that this is in a way a mark of desperation. I mean, it's people who think they are close to kind of clinching their control. But again, they have to do it in this way because they don't represent the majority and they know the majority is against them, whether it's on abortion rights or environmental protection or preserving social security and Medicare or, you know, funding our public schools or all of these things. So they do it in this way because that's the kind of people they are and they are representing these, these arch-right uh, billionaire donors and, you know, religious reactionaries. Um, but I think also just to give people uh, like the smell test on some of this, I mean, it isn't just that they managed to transfer all of this money 
money with no tax obligation for uh, the donor who sold his company or for Leonard Leo receiving this this huge gift of one point six million dollars. Um, there's a track record. Could you do here. that again? It's one point six billion. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, you know, with this one point six billion dollars, there is a, a prior track record here with Leonard Leo um, of getting dark money. So it's untraceable, but constructing deals that cannot be tracked in public. So at the time of the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, my dear friend and colleague Lisa Graves at True North uh, Research discovered uh, Leonard Leo got a windfall that enabled him to pay off his uh, mortgage 22 years early, <laughs> a 2012 mortgage 22 years early for, for that work, uh, and then to purchase, I believe it was a 12-bedroom mansion in Maine um, in another, you know, effectively what looked like a payoff. So, you know, I do hope the IRS gets the new monies that people are talking about, because clearly we need more eyes on all of these deals. And actually, you know, as someone who has studied this um, and the way this, this radical corporate right works, I think the place they're most vulnerable uh, for charges of breaking the law and criminality are in this domain of uh, tax violations, um, you know, of misusing charity laws and such. So I do hope that this latest um, uh, really journalistic coup by the New York Times reporters uh, who discovered this, I hope this will inspire others to dig into the really disgusting phony use of um, a, a charitable uh, tax status in order to fund these organizations that are literally enchaining democracy. And it's just, it's so disgusting. They're having us pay for it, you know, for every tax dollar they, uh, these billionaires don't pay because they can claim nonprofit status. They have the rest of us subsidizing what they are doing to us. And I think if more people understood that there would be more action and more rallying to do something about it. Well, Nancy McLean, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I'll be speaking with Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University and an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. We're going to get a beach station break and back looking into how Russian organized crime got a foothold in the United States in Brighton Beach and how Putin's time as a hooligan in what he described as his street university, along with his ties to organized crime, are even greater influences on him than his former career as a Soviet intelligence officer. Coming from the field that this ain't exactly real or it's real but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder Sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming To the USA Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Douglas Century, the author and co-author of numerous best-selling books, including Hunting El Chapo, Under and Alone, Brotherhood of Warriors, Barney Ross, The Life of a Jewish Fighter, and Takedown, The Fall of the Last Mafia Empire. A veteran investigative journalist, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Tablet, and The Guardian. And his latest book just out is The Last Boss of Brighton, 
Boris Bieber Neufeld and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas Century. Thank you for having me, Ian. I'm pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Brighton Beach Mob have always fascinated me. There was, of course, during the Nixon arms control era with the Soviet Union, the so-called senator from Boeing had an amendment, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. And yes. coinciding with that, of course, there was the Free Soviet Jury Movement. And my understanding is that the gulags were emptied uh, mm-hmm. of the Vori Vazikoni, the Thieves Society, most of whom were Jewish, a lot weren't, but they got into the United States. I believe in many ways that it was a sort of a financial racket as well where the KGB ran the operation and they kicked back 50000 per Jew that got out of the country to Brezhnev, who had the world's biggest collection of uh, luxury and antique cars. <laughs> but it's sort of an irony, is it not, that... I mean, Castro did it also later on with the aerial boat... Uh, yeah, Muriel. Yeah, Muriel Boatlift. Yeah, exactly. Dumped a whole bunch of criminals on the U.S. So was that sort of a bit of an irony there? That in order to free Soviet Jews, the United States got saddled with a bunch of Russian gangsters. Yeah, it's a bit of an irony. The freedom has its uh, upsides and its downsides. What? What? Yeah, it's it's long been rumored, although never proven. Uh, you're absolutely right. The Jews of a certain generation all would talk about having gotten out of the USSR, which was quite an anti-Semitic state, as people know. Um, I mean, you really couldn't practice Judaism. But they they would say we got out under the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. So it was yeah, Scoop Jackson and and Vanik uh, co-sponsored this bill. It was a trade bill, as you know, um, and that it was really a policy of family reunification. So all the Jews would say, we're going to Israel, and you'd get out if you, sometimes Jewish uh, groups would write these fictitious letters. You had to have an invitation, and you had to be reuniting. Once you got out, as Boris Neufeld's family did through Vienna, and then to Rome, then you could switch your visa. And yes, you absolutely could then get to the United States or Canada or Australia, depended on the waiting time. Brighton Beach was a very popular destination because people may know it's it's called Little Odessa and it it had always been a Jewish neighborhood going back at least to the you know 1920s like Coney Island but you're absolutely right there were rumors that the Vorizakoni like uh, Boris Neufeld's original boss was a man named um, Yevsey Agron he was a Vorizakoni Jewish guy from Leningrad had a prison record the fact that these guys got out um it should be no mystery I'm sure there was a dumping of undesirables and they probably uh, the KGB I'm sure would have wanted to empty its <laughs> get its get some of these unsavory guys out of the country I mean it was a very very onerous process to all the paperwork that had to be filed and so Boris by that time he emigrated with his grandmother his brother uh, wife children um, it was a big family unit that left but Boris already had three years of hard labor in a, a zone, a work zone. So I always wondered. I said, really? So that wouldn't have been a, a check mark on your uh, your application? I guess it was actually a positive. Hey, get them out of the country. We don't really need these guys. Um, there were estimates at its peak around the 80s when Brighton Beach was really going wild. Both the NYPD and the FBI said in a community of about 40,000, there were 500 quote-unquote professional criminals. So it's not a huge number, but it's not nothing either. I mean, these were these were guys who were not afraid of prison in the U.S. 
Boris always said to me, having done three stints in U.S. federal prisons, three, he said, you can't compare to a Soviet prison, a U.S. prison, it's hell versus paradise. In the Soviet zone, we were worried about how many calories we would get not to starve to death or freeze to death or get shot by the guards when we were marching to the labor site. In the U.S. prison, who controls the remote control to the color TV? Do we play bocce ball today? Or t- and I, right. here, Literally, these guys – now, I don't think it, it – you'll never see this, this kind of crime wave again because many of these guys had university educations. Boris didn't. Um, he was going to a culinary school, of all things. But, yeah, his boss, Yvesay, his original boss who was murdered, had a degree, uh, University of Leningrad. Another very prominent guy, Marat Balagula, had a degree from um, uh, in economics. So you had a cadre of people, a cohort, who had university educations or were extremely adept at be- beating the system. Uh, theft from the state was endemic in that period you spoke about, the Brezhnev era, when nobody, there were very few true believers in communism, if any. So everybody was was ripping off the state, and at the peak, uh, the top of that you know, pyramid was the Communist Party. David Remnick, brilliant writer, of course, who wrote Lenin's Tomb, said it was as if the entire country was run by the biggest mafia family in history known as the Communist Party of the USSR. Uh, So you, you had this kind of perfect storm of guys who were really, really adept at theft from the state, black marketeering, with advanced degrees, also had been to some of the worst prisons you can imagine. And then they come to the United States and the laws didn't scare them. And the fear of the prison system didn't scare them. So, you well, know. well, it wasn't just that they weren't scared, uh, Douglas. America was a land of milk and honey. They had never seen such, you know, like the candy land of crime. Absolutely. You know, they got into uh, taxi medallions and gasoline tax scams and Crescia, of course, they started out with, right? Yeah, the Krisha, the protection racket, so people don't know Russian, it's uh, it's it's still endemic in, in absolutely you can't do business in Russia, in, in Putin's Russia, without paying Krisha. Krisha is Russian for a roof, and it can be up to 20, 30%. If you don't have an organized crime group protecting you in Russia, and this started in what was called the wild 90s when everything just exploded into a Hobbesian free market. It went overnight from <laughs> a complete state-controlled system to, you know, uh, pure capitalism at its without any any rules and structure. So organized crime groups would say, you got to pay us 20% to protect you from other people like us. <laughs> and that's Bor- Boris's bread and butter. But yeah, going back to uh, Brighton Beach in the early days, yeah, they would, um, especially, they, like every ethnic crime wave, they pray primarily on their own. The Sicilians would do it, the Black Hand days, and the you know the Jewish racketeers of the 20s, Meyer Lansky and, and Lefty Bokholder, the shakedowns of their own uh, ethnic groups. So in, in particular, it was like the uh, Orthodox Jews in the diamond business. They would have to pay Krisha. Uh, anybody who had a little factory that was making uh, Russians love their smoked fish and their herring. <laughs> so all the all those places were paying Krisha. Then by the time it, the the height for them was the gasoline tax scam, which was billions, billions mm-hmm. and billions uh, annually in lost uh, taxes. And, you know, the consumer in the New York state area didn't complain because the the gasoline t- uh, stations that were controlled by the Russian mob and the Italian mob were selling their gas cheaper than other people because they were paying the tax anyway. It was an extremely complicated daisy chain scheme, but at the end of the day, um, 
you know, it went on for 10 years without the feds being able to figure it out. And I often say, if you understand that stealing from the state was kind of a high art, Boris was doing it in, um, in Siberia with kind of no-show jobs, which they called uh, dead souls. You'd have 18 guys on the books, but uh, 18 real workers, but you might have a salary for 40. And since everything in the USSR was cash-based, you know, payday, as the foreman of the crew, Boris would collect you know, these fictitious, uh, non-existent workers. And that was a huge profit, but you were risking um, theft from the state in an excessive amount was punishable by the supreme measure, which is a very famous word in Russian, supreme measurement, the firing squad. Sure, but, so, but Douglas, that, that has relevance to what's happening today because Prigozhin, Putin's chef, who is the head of procurement for the Russian military, they're doing the same thing with ghost battalions, collecting money, no wonder they're, they're getting nowhere in Ukraine. But, and, and, you know, but by the way, one of the Boris's uh, was always at the right place at the right time in this dark kind of way. So when communism began to collapse first in East Germany, he was um, the muscle for a, an outfit out of um, Antwerp. M&S was a, a import-export business. But they rushed into East Berlin and did these, you know, at this point in the Soviet Union, as the collapse was happening, there was nothing on the shelves. There were, you know, you really couldn't buy TV sets or sofas. So uh, same thing in, in uh, it's written about in the, in the book, they would go in and they would do deals with certain Red Army colonels who were, in, all you had to know was certain colonels who were in charge of the procurement and they would pad the cost of everything, you know, uh, socks, everything, you know, it's, it's a vast amount of money that has to be spent on a huge military. I think 500,000 troops were still stationed in East Germany. So people rushed into, and this, this has been going on. It's in the Russian mentality. It's in the uh, Soviet, the former Soviet states mentality. Um, there's a joke. One of the women told me in the book, uh, we used to say, you're not stealing from your job. What's wrong with you? Like everybody was trying to hustle to survive well, in the Soviet Union. They used to system. say, we, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So, <laughs> But I wanted to touch on Putin here, who you mentioned in the book as a hooligan. And in many ways, as a young uh, hooligan in uh, St. Petersburg or Leningrad, Leningrad um, yep. Putin described that as his street university. And of course, he had longstanding ties with organized crime. Do you think he's more of a crook than anything else? Putin. Yeah, I, I wrote a, an op-ed in the Globe and Mail of Canada saying he's the, I said, Vladimir Putin is the wealthiest, most brazen and uh, powerful mobster in history. Uh, it was a, you know, clickbait kind of headline, but wealthiest, Elon Musk was asked, well, how does it feel at 260 billion to be the wealthiest man in the world? And he said, uh, I think Vladimir Putin is significantly wealthier than me. And then Putin, <laughs> it was funny because uh, actually, Musk is a pretty well-educated man. He said, it, it, wasn't it Crassus? He said, Crassus said, you're not really rich unless you have a legion. He said, I, I can't go invade countries like Putin can. So I think he is, yes, he was shaped by this hooliganism, which, yeah, this is, is street toughs. I'm pretty sure Putin stabbed guys, but he was known for being a pretty scrappy, vicious street fighter. And then his rise to power, people can look up my article, or you can find this all over the web, uh, was with a guy named Kumarin. When he was the deputy to uh, Shabchak, a completely corrupted system, he was the deputy uh, mayor of St. Petersburg, a very notorious gangster who's written about in my book, uh, was said to call the night governor. Kumarin was said to run the city at night because Putin ran it in the day. So he, yeah, he rose up hand in, in glove. Yeah, sure, he's a crook. He's probably the bi biggest kleptocracy in history right now. Navalny exposed, I, I encourage anybody, just Google Putin's palace, the history of the world's biggest bribe. Navalny exposed this $1.4 billion palace, which, you know, Putin clearly had for his girlfriend. 
uh, it's the world's largest private residence and probably in history, uh, helipad and ice skating rinks and theater and everything. But um, his, <laughs> when the R Russian people saw that video and started to go to the streets, one of his, you know, oligarch buddies, a guy, a Jewish guy named Arkady Rottenberg, who used to do judo with Putin, he claimed, oh, it's my palace. If you look at the Pandora Papers, Rottenberg, they're two Rottenberg brothers, and they are uh, uh, they are seen as facilitators for Russian organized crime and money right. laundering. Billionaires so, yeah, who made Putin's their money the, out of playing the cello, right? Yeah. Well, and <laughs> go, this is the thing people figure. need to understand. People need to understand one thing about these oligarch slash oligarch slash gangsters, I would call them, is that people keep thinking, oh, they're going to rise up against Putin. But Putin was very wise in one way, in that he made a lot of guys very rich. He made these guys billionaires. And they're loyal to him. And as long as their money isn't frozen and it, you know, it's not just in Swiss banks. Clearly, it's in Panama and all sorts of offshore places. So as long as they have access to their money, they're not going to turn on him because right. he's yeah, he's like the head of a big crime family. To me, it's yeah, he's running a, a mafia state, basically. But let's talk a little bit. We're running out of time. I want to touch on connections to Trump and Trump Tower. We know that the KGB stole a lot of money as the Soviet Union was collapsing since they were the only ones that knew where all the secrets were. A lot of that money was laundered through property. A lot of these Brighton Beach gangsters like David Bogatin and Markowitz were the first. I think they gave Trump $6 million in cash for some condos in Trump yep. Tower. Ivankov yep. also, the, 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 the Yaponchik, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yaponchik. He um, also had a condo in the Trump Tower. It was, it was like a gangster frat house. And, they, yep. you know, Trump would play poker with them and they'd let him win and there'd all be these beautiful Russian girls hanging over him. So what's the connection there in terms of... of well, it goes very deep. It's, it, there's all sorts of Trump, Trump world figures. One quick one I'll tell you is that the Boris and his boss, they invested in a... Uh, it's a it still exists. It's a country club in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, called El Carib. And the Italian mob had a presence there, but so did the Russians. The Russians, they built a health club adjacent to, or actually below the country club. So the man who actually officially owns it is a guy named Dr. Morty Levine. And he was, he's a Jewish uh, physician. Ah, well, his nephew happens to be Michael Cohen. <laughs> Michael Cohen used to hang out. And it, so the Trump world, there's all sorts of guys who are, Mentioned in the book, Felix Sater's dad uh, was doing a, at one point, uh, their real name was um, Sater, was uh, Shafarovsky. And Boris and he were doing some counterfeit money thing in in uh, London. And so Michael, Michael um, Felix Sater's dad uh, ended up doing time in, in Great Britain for for counterfeiting. It, it, it's, it's just all swirling around Trump. I mean, he knew all these guys. I don't know what, you know, the theories of what Putin may have on Trump, but he was absolutely in tight with um, lots of guys who are very well connected to the Russian organized crime world. And by the way, they love him. Like Boris, he loves Trump. Every The Russian emigrate community, sorry, the Soviet emigrate community in the US are some of the biggest supporters of Trump. And I don't mean just the criminals. They just love him and they love what he stood for. I don't know. It's a very strange, uh, you know. I don't know. Maybe it's it's they see it. They well, see they the, like gold chains, and he likes gold <laughs> ornaments. <laughs> but you're absolutely right that there are very suspicious cash transactions. I mean, it's a great way to launder money, by the way. You you pay cash for a uh, you know the Chinese organized crime does it in Vancouver. It's all over the world. Pay cash for a property. I mean, what realtor is not going to take cash as a down payment? And then you flip it and you sell it, and that's a great way to launder your 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 ill-gotten gains. So dr drug dealers know it, and 
Yeah, and Trump's been in the Trump's been in that in that dirty racket for. A lot, I mean, real estate's always been a mafia kind of right. related business in New York, but um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of Trumpian connections. But you know, when you write a book like I did, you're being very carefully vetted by lawyers. So there were a lot of things I know that I couldn't actually. Sure. Well, I'm, in the, I, I'm in the same situation too and I'm sitting on an explosive story that came out of Thursday's program at the end and uh, I can't get anybody to go on the record at this point about how the Russians infiltrated Mar-a-Lago yeah. so I thank you for joining us I'm afraid we've run out of time but it's fascinating we barely scratched the surface Douglas and that is a way to tell people they should get your book because it's <laughs> rich with it. incredible details and thanks for joining us I really appreciate you having me on and again, I've been speaking with uh, Douglas Century, the author and co-author of numerous best-selling books, including Hunting El Chapo, Under and Alone, Brotherhood of Warriors, Barney Ross, The Life of a Jewish Fighter, and Take Down the Fall of the Last Mafia Empire. A veteran investigative journalist, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Tablet, and The Guardian. And his latest book just out is The Last Boss of Brighton Beach, Boris Bieber, Neyfeld, and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine